uh, after doing a, a different message uh, for Easter last week. And uh, let's, uh, we'll, we're going to cover verses 13 through 22 today. I'm going to go ahead and read that, and then we'll have uh, a word of prayer. 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom, he also, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels, and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Let's pray. Father, once again, we stop to thank you for your word. We stop to thank you for the impact that it has on our lives, for the cleansing it does in our minds and in our hearts, for the anchors that you have placed all over the place for us to hold on to, for a sure foundation on which to stand, for a light for our paths and for the path itself, the way, the truth, and the life, your word, your son. God, we just praise you for that in this moment. And we ask you, God, that it will not be without effect on us. I ask you, God, that you will make me a workman approved that correctly handles the word of truth. And I pray that nothing that I say gets in the way of what you have for each of us and that we're prepared to hear from you, to be exposed by you, to be trained by you, and to follow you more closely. In Jesus' name, amen. So Peter has just finished writing about the blessing, an inherited blessing that comes from submission and obedience. If those in obedience having the eyes of the Lord on them, it says, and his ears open to their prayers, it says, but the face of the Lord is warning in my Bible study. Part of that reading was Leviticus 20. And the first five verses of Leviticus... There I go. This is happening a lot. I... I've been watching too much Porky Pig. This is it. Leviticus. Um, 
it talks about those that would offer their children to Molech. And it says those people, right? It says you, you are to stone those people. And God says, I will set my face against them. So God's, having God's face set against you is worse than being dead. Stone them and I will set my face against them. And God talks about that in the preceding verses here in 1 Peter. What is he talking about? What has he talked about? Submission, that idea of coming under another and lifting them up to rulers in marriage within the body of believers, being compassionate, loving, tender-hearted, courteous, returning blessing for evil, restraining our tongues, putting a bit in our mouths, tying our tongues down. We need to do that more often than we do. I need to do that more often than I do. Restraining our tongues from evil and deceit, pursuing peace. And then he dives into verse 13 and says, who is he that will harm you if you become followers of what is good? One of our favorite lines from the movie E.T., right? So this is, yeah, Deb, you don't know where I'm going with this, but I'm going somewhere. One of our favorite lines from the movie E.T. is uh, Drew Barrymore is like whatever, you know, four or five, seven years old. And uh, there <laughs> she says, anyway, why would Elliot go into the forest? Because they're trying to keep their mom from knowing what he's done. Anyway, why would Elliot go into the forest? And I feel like Peter's saying this, you know, to us. Anyway, who is he that will harm you? If you become followers, you know, of, of, of what is good. Don't be silly. Doing good makes you bulletproof. This isn't what he's saying, and he's going to clarify that in his next sentence. And with the example of Jesus, but I'd like us to camp out here for a minute. Many a person seeking to submit to rulers has been harmed. Many wives trying to submit to their husbands have been abused. Many Christians pursuing peace have been led to gladiators or wild animals or just difficulty. Many Christians pursuing peace with non-Christians or even with their brothers and sisters in Christ have come to harm. He's not saying all that's going to be avoided. And many Christians are bought into a lie that following Jesus will make their problems go away. And when that doesn't happen, they give up. Peter's, uh, Peter talks in his second letter about how Christ entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We have other options. They aren't good, but we've got other options, right? Instead of entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly, we can avoid. We can avoid. I'm just going to keep my head down and see if I can minimize any chance of suffering in my life. I'll be quiet. Bury my head. Just kind of go along here. We can self-protect. I'm not sure God will come through, so I won't allow myself to be harmed for doing good. I'll do some, but not enough to really expose myself, not enough to put myself in any kind of danger, not enough to suffer any kind of reproach from anyone else. 
I'll always be on the offensive with my good. Right? I'll be before me, and I will be so convinced of my righteousness and the rightness of what I'm doing that I'll just blow people away. I won't be harmed that way if I stay on the offensive. But he's talking about being followers of what is good. Being followers of what is good. With these two, avoidance or self-protection, we maybe don't completely give up like those who were looking to Jesus to solve all their problems, but we end up settling for much less than what God has for us. Choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. So you have other options. You have other options, but entrusting ourselves to God, to him who judges justly, is by far the best being followers, being followers of what is good. We've got to commit to being followers of what is good. In verse 14, again, he says, you know, but even if, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Blessed, fortunate, good, as in receiving favor, happy. Will we take God's interpretation of being blessed or cleave to our own definition of suffering, seeing things as we see them rather than changing to his view? Do you think that when you suffer for righteousness' sake, I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. Do you, when you're on the precipice, right, of doing righteousness, whatever that is, and Satan's in the back of your mind, and your own spirit and your own will are in the back of your mind saying, don't do it. Don't stick your neck out. Don't raise your hand. Do you entrust yourself to him who judges justly? The blessing is here for me. The blessing is not in holding back. The blessing is not in... Turning tail and run. The blessing is not in being silent. There are plenty of situations for us to be silent in. That's not what I'm talking about. We talked about restraining our tongues already, right? There's plenty of situations. But there's plenty of situations for us to speak up. Not in a way that runs people over, but in a way that is as a follower of the good, for righteousness' sake, that's going to help other people. <clears throat> Then we have this phrase, be troubled. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, you're happy, you're fortunate, you've received favor, and he puts it, uh, well, I don't think Peter adds the quotations, but it's there, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And the footnote references Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, and why don't you go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah 8, pretty close to the middle of your Bible. Here God is telling Isaiah that Assyria is coming. 
the nation of Assyria is coming, but he's not to act in the same manner as the people around him that have rejected God. He should not walk in their ways. And we'll read verses 12 through 15. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, let be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. This is exactly what Peter goes on to say in verse 15. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Set apart Christ as Lord. He's telling these guys, set apart God as God. Don't go with the flow. Don't be caught up in the things that they're saying. Don't be, uh, don't be stuck on what they're saying and what they're doing. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. We don't like that. I don't want to fear God. I don't want to dread God. We have to talk about it all the time because it doesn't, it's like, does not compute, does not compute. God is love. You know, where, where do I go with this? You know, in your quiet moments and maybe in your loud moments, you know all the things you fear and dread. Wouldn't it be better to fear and dread God? than all of those other things? Wouldn't it be better to fear the one who can both kill the body and put the soul in hell? That's not his desire for you. But it talks about the immensity and the amazingness and the awe that we ought to have for God instead of everything that's going on around us. Instead of all the things that are bubbling up instead of all the things that grip our heart and our attention, that that's where we're to focus. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will be a sanctuary. Not someone to run away from. Not someone to say, he must hate me. Because he doesn't give me everything I want. Not someone to hide from. But the sanctuary that you go to that we all need over and over and over again, sanctuary. If, you, if not, what do you have? A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, a trap, and a snare. And you, you will be taken, it says. You'll be taken. How many times have you been taken because you didn't set Jesus apart as Lord? Because you chose to protect yourself instead? Because you listened to all the other voices running around in your mind? Who was Lord in that situation? Fear, desire. So, extremely interesting that we are here and we and it directs us back to Isaiah 8 because in our Bible study at the Rodens on Friday, 
Tom brought this very scripture out. Did you know, or did I? Because in the King James, there's no reference that this is Isaiah 8 or the New King James or whatever I was reading. I'm like, where is this? Where is this scripture? And I had to search. Where does this come from? It comes from Isaiah 8. When God is showing us, is showing me things in multiple places, I go, huh, I think he wants us to know this. I think he wants, he wants me to know this. And I will say by extension, uh, perhaps you as well, that he wants you to know this. There it is. Bing. There it is. Bing. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all this people. Call a conspiracy. Nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary. But a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, a trap and a snare. Many shall stumble, fall, be broken, snared, and taken. So in our Bible study on Friday, we were finishing the book that we've been on for over a year because we met once a month and it had 14 chapters and there were some snow outs. So the book was Suffering, Gospel Hope uh, in Suffering, right? So we, we suffered for well over a year. Uh, we like to call it Suffering at the Rodens. Sometimes it was Suffering at the Buffkins. Um, and this week, uh, we were talking about the comfort of God's people, but I'm not going to spend much time on that. When, um, and this doesn't always happen, but for whatever reason, uh, on Friday, like all the women sat down at the dining room table. Luke had made steak in honor of the end of our suffering, right? So that was fantastic to prompt you guys to want to come to our study for the meat of the word. Um, all the women had sat down on the dining room table, and all the guys went out onto the porch. And we were sitting at the table out there, thinking about all the cultural things that are going on. Uh, and I asked Luke and Kate if it was okay. The only people you can identify that were there. Sorry, Tom. I, we identified Tom as there, too. Throwing you under the bus, Tom. Uh, Mary and I and Luke and Kate and now Tom. Um, and at the guy's table, we're just, it, there's just a circle of all the things that are wrong in society. The, the gender issues, uh, the political issues, financial issues. They're just, it's just, we're talking about and talking about and talking about it. And then I, I got up from the table to come in and get more food because it was delicious. And uh, at the dining room table... It's the same exact thing. All It's just like, it, so it wasn't like, oh, the women are so unspiritual, you know, and just talking about these things. It was at both tables. Just, it was a circle, right? And it was all about what's bad. And I, I think, misinterpreted that as complaining, right? Because there was a section in the book in, this, in what we were studying that was about complaining. It, it said, complainers attract other complainers, right? When we're suffering and when we complain, we attract other people. And it becomes, and it's kind of like a toilet. Down it goes, right? And I, it was, I, I think that talk of everything that's going on in society can easily devolve into complaining. So I'm not, I'm not saying people there were complaining. 
I think it can easily devolve into I'm better than those people that are doing these things. So what's worse, pride or complaining? Pride's probably worse. Pride's probably more destructive to us. It can easily turn into and, and has often a lot of fear within it. And we're called to be, listen to this, we're called in verse 15 to be people of such hope that others are asking us about it. What doesn't happen in those conversations that are swirling around what's going on, what wasn't happening, and what should happen, I have hope. And so when it gets around to you, I have hope, and I want to share my hope with you. It should happen amongst us as believers, and we should be the ones willing to raise our hand when it's going around and around, when we're out there with unbelievers and saying, I have hope. And Peter's saying your hope should be so much that people know it already, and you don't even have to raise their hand, that they turn to you and say, what do you think? Because you don't let this stuff drag you down. You're not focused on Assyria coming in to wipe us out. You're not focused on who's winning the election. You're not focused on these things. Should we pray about these things? Should we care about these things? Yes, but we should have such hope that people look to us for it. We don't need a button that says, ask me about our hope. Because it's who we are. It's who we are. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. With meekness and fear. Not, I know all the right things. Meekness and fear. Where does it come from? Where does the meekness and fear come from? Because God is your fear and God is your dread and he is your sanctuary. Therefore, you have hope. And you don't have to go down the toilet with everybody else when they're caught into these things. He says, having a good conscience, and we'll talk more about that later, we're to exude hope to avoid it. When we set Christ apart as Lord in our lives, this is what will mark our lives. And this is what will keep us from getting taken. Set Christ apart as Lord in your heart. I'll give you three more verses. I said before, I wasn't sure where Peter was quoting from, and I think he is quoting Isaiah, but I think he's quoting Jesus as well. We won't turn to these. I'll read them to you, and if you'd like to jot them down to be able to go back to uh, later. Uh, John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. John 14, 27, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Isaiah 41, 9 and 10. And God's God's speaking to Israel in Isaiah. And there's a picture of Jesus in there. There's a picture of the nation of Israel and how God is using the Savior and them as a beacon for all peoples. He says, I took you, and I, and I 
there are passages in the Old Testament that we need to understand were not written to us. They can be for us that we can get understanding from them, but they're not written to us. And I know I've said that before, but people throw things around all the time and they don't look at the context and, and go, oh, yeah, that doesn't really apply to me, right? That doesn't really apply to our situation. Uh, and so we have to be careful with that. But I think you can insert yourself into this because he talks about being chosen servants. And he's talking about the people of Israel, and, and we become that, having been grafted in to the vine that is Christ. I think these adhere a lot to us. Isaiah 41, verses 9 and 10. I took you from the ends of the earth. You are my chosen servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is the one whose hands we're in, God. This is the reason for our hope. This is the reason why we don't have to call conspiracy what everybody else calls conspiracy, even if there are conspiracies going on. We don't have to get sucked into it. Verse 17. It is better if it is the will of God. This is We're back in 1 Peter, sorry. 1 Peter 3, 17. It is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If it is the will of God for us to suffer, it's better to suffer for doing good. Doing evil, right, uh, it, it's the consequences of that probably won't be avoided. You will reap what you sow. God's very merciful. God's very merciful but you are probably causing trouble for yourself. And suffering, suffering can certainly happen for doing evil. If we're going to suffer, let's suffer for doing good. Let's suffer for doing good. Don't make, our, don't make your life about avoiding suffering. Let's look at our Savior's example, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Christ suffered once for sins. The just, and just is singular here, the just one for the unjust, which is plural, the unjust ones. Christ suffered once for sins, the just one for the unjust ones, that he might do what? Bring us to God. Hey, Artie, I want to introduce you to my father. I've taken care of all of your sin. I want to bring you to my dad. He's he's going to be your dad as well. Cindy, can I introduce you to my father? He's your father. I've taken care of everything the just one for the unjust ones. Amazing. Bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The purpose of Christ's suffering 
was to bring you and me to God to make a way for that to happen. And if we are, if we have become like him, our suffering has immense purpose and profit. We can't save anybody. We can't do the same thing Jesus did. But if we have become like him, then our suffering has immense purpose and it has immense profit that God wants to use to bring others to him. Now that Jesus has done all the cleansing as well. Verses 19 through 20. If we start at the end of 18, it says, Jesus was made alive by the Spirit, verse 19, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, eight souls, were saved through water. What now? <laughs> what happened? I'm with you all the way up to being made alive in the Spirit, Peter. I'm tracking with you, but then you get to preaching to the spirits in prison, and I don't know what you're talking about. I'm really not sure where you're going with this, right? I mean, that's how it felt in my life. You guys may know all the answers, so I'm not asking you to shout them out right now. Uh, so there are people who say, and, there, and I've done this in my reading of it in the past, I say, oh, that's nice. Jesus went to hell to talk to people that had never heard of him before. He came to preach the good news to to people that were disobedient before. He descended into hell to preach the gospel to people that existed before the flood. That's a nice and comforting thought. You know, how cool that God cares about them. It's not just us. It's not just the AD people, right? It's the BC people too that he cares about. So there's multiple problems with that point of view. Problem one, why would God only care about those who were before Noah? Because there's a whole bunch of people after that, right? And he's specifically talking about these spirits in prison at this point and from that point in time. So there's one hole in that theory. Problem two, everywhere it says preaching the gospel, the word that's used is euangelize or evangelize, which is the word that we use today evangelization, preaching the good news. Here the word is kirioso, kiriso, sorry. It's to proclaim, to proclaim. He's not preaching the good news. He's proclaiming something to these disobedient spirits that are in prison. Problem three, he's preaching to or proclaiming to spirits any time man's salvation not Spirits. Souls, not spirits. There are three spirits or types of spirit mentioned in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit. We see him at work right here, right? Jesus was made alive by the Holy Spirit. And by spirits of men, we each individually have our own spirit, our will. Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen, when he's being stoned in Acts, says, Lord, uh, uh, receive my spirit. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why do we need to be poor in spirit? Because it's less about our will and more about God's will. So there's a Holy Spirit, there's a spirit of man, and there are evil spirits. 
Go read Genesis 6, 1 through 8, and see what was happening on the earth at that time. It says the sons of God, or fallen angels, were taking the daughters of men and having children with them. Things that God never intended to have happen, and the suspicion is that they were trying to ruin the line from which the Messiah would be brought forth. That these spirits were attempting to make it impossible for God to have his plan of a seed being brought forth from the woman by him, by his spirit. And God said, I'm not, I'm not dealing with this. You guys, I'm locking you up. I'm putting you somewhere where you can't wreak havoc anymore. Havoc anymore. And these are, these are shadows of the truth, right? We hear about the Greek mythology and all of these things, and we think, oh my gosh, that's so of their situation. God says, no, there were giants, and these are the heroes of old that you learn about. These things are real. The stories, you know, how much of that is actual, actually what happened or just a shadow of what actually did happen, we don't know. But these things occurred, and God said, you're being put away for these things. And Jesus goes and proclaims victory to these. Peter talks about this group again. In 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 4, it says, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, when they were disobedient, but sent them to hell, Tartarus. He defines this more here, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. And these are the ones that Jesus goes to and proclaims victory. You guys may have hoped someone's going to let you out and you would win, but you aren't going to win. I gave my life up and the Spirit brought me to life and the Spirit has sent me to you to proclaim victory. And the victory over them is a victory for us. Every victory Jesus has won is a victory for us. So this is not the proclaiming of good news. It's a proclamation of victory. So you may ask, and I think this is why people want to believe that what it's saying is Jesus is going and preaching to people that came before him. How is anyone that came before Jesus saved? Big question. Who said that? Thank you, Ray. Oh, I thought you were raising your hand like it was you, Shannon, taking credit. Both of them? Awesome. You're right. Faith. How are any of us saved? Faith. All of us. In verse 21, he says, this whole scene with Noah is an antitype, a symbol, an example of baptism, which now saves us. So wait a minute. Bill? You and Cindy and Ray just said faith saves us. Now it's saying baptism. How do I figure all this out? All right. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. We are saved by faith. That's what baptism is, the removal of dirt from the flesh. But you're getting underwater, and it's not about that. It's the answer or pledge or response of a good conscience toward God. If we go back in the Old Testament, Abraham, it says, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Before the law, before anything else happened, what was God looking for? Faith. When Jesus came across faith, he said, I haven't seen great faith, greater faith than this in all of Israel. 
He was astounded at great faith. What's he looking for in us? Faith. Faith. A pledge of a good conscience. Conscience. It means, <laughs> the word is synedesis. And it means with knowing. S-Y-N, sin, is a prefix that means with. And adesis means knowing, with knowing. So that pledge of a good conscience, we're responding to God with a good or clear with knowing. What are we knowing? That we're saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything it says in, these, in, in verse 22, the end of verse 21 and verse 22 what are we knowing? What are we pledging? God, I understand what has been done I, un, I, to the extent that I can. I'm not just following the crowd here. I am pledging a good knowing of what you have done for me. What has he done? Saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, gone into heaven, powers made subject to him, all the things mentioned in verse 22. Our acknowledgement, our our pledge of a good conscience, our pledge of knowing what God has done. We can't get anywhere without faith in what God has done. That's what we need. That's what's important. Do you see any of those things? Do you see the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you see that he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God? Do you see angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him? You have to take all of the So your faith, your pledge, saves you. And the faith of the people that came before Jesus in God, right? Why did Israel miss uh, what God had for them? Why did they miss God's salvation? Because they thought they could achieve it by following the rules rather than in faith in God. I'd also direct you, uh, I'd also direct you to Romans 6, verses 1 through 7. You can write that down. It gives you more understanding of what's occurring in baptism. I'm not going to cover that today, but all of this is taken by faith. There's nothing special about the water. There is everything special about our faith and who it's in. So bear with me for a few more minutes today. I know you have visions of cake floating in your head. So Peter talks about the saving of Noah and his family as an antitype or an example. Uh, The flood and, and them being saved is amazing and spectacular, but the ability to be baptized in faith into the name of Jesus Christ far outshines what happened there. I mean, think about the event of the flood. The whole earth covered with water. Almost every living thing, their faith in God is bigger than that. Whatever worldwide event has happened, your relationship with God is bigger than that. So the word he uses is antitypos, a copy or example or a representation. And this is also used, uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be back and forth in 9 and 8. But turn first to Hebrews chapter 9. This word is also used here. 
and verse 24. So Noah and the eight being saved in the ark, and Antitipos, an example, a representation of our salvation. So here we see Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies, antitypos, of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. If you go back to Hebrews 8, verse 5, It talks about the service of the priests under the Old Covenant. It says they serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern that you were shown on the mountain. So the priests serve a copy. The priests in the Old Covenant law, served a copy. Jesus went into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. And now turn back to chapter 9. And it talks about what Jesus did there and how it was different in verse 11. So we got the priests serving at the temple, right? They're bringing... Uh, the sacrifices in, and there are only certain times they can go all the way in to the presence of God. Hebrews 9, verse 11, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. We were, Mary and I were sitting at the table the other day, and she said, do you think it would be fair to characterize the old covenant as a rules-based system where if you did good, if you did right, you got blessed, and if you didn't, you're right here in this group of scriptures I was thinking about and studying this idea of examples, right? Because I knew I knew about this from Hebrews. I didn't realize it was in 1 Peter 3 about the antitypos, the copy, the representation of things, and I wanted to learn more about it. She said, she asked me that question. Do you think it's fair to characterize the old covenant as a rules-based system where if you did good, you were blessed, you were rewarded, and if you did, if you didn't, then you received harm, you received punishment. And I thought to myself as I was reading this, what struck me, the difference between the old and new covenants is who did what where. The priests entered the tabernacle, a copy or a shadow of the heavenly things with the blood of goats and calves, which could not bring permanence of forgiveness. Jesus entered the most holy place with his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. There was never anything wrong with any covenant that God ever established. There is never anything wrong with the law. It's beautiful. It's amazing. 
we get caught up in when Jesus says, not a, not a jot or a tittle of the law will disappear until all things are accomplished. We're like, oh no, I'm under the law because Jesus said it's still there. But we know that's not true for some other scriptures. It's all beautiful. It has to do with who did what, where. And when Jesus entered the heavenly places with his own blood, he achieved eternal redemption for you. So the law still is beautiful. And the old covenant still is beautiful. And everything God has done is amazing. And you are safe. And you have hope in him. Don't put it elsewhere. Don't be taken. Let's pray. Father, we just are in awe of you. Please, God, we beg you on each of our own behalves and on behalf of one another. We intercede on behalf of one another that you would plant your word deeply in our hearts. That we wouldn't forget this afternoon. That we wouldn't forget tomorrow or next week. And you would continue to build us and draw us closer 